the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello and welcome to the fifth and final episode in our series of Slaughter and May podcasts, Redundancy in Focus. I'm Claire Fletcher, a professional support lawyer in the employment team, and today I'm joined by one of our partners, Pori Cronin. In today's episode, Porig and I will discuss the aftermath of redundancies. Once the dust has settled on a redundancy process, what comes next? There are five key points we're going to discuss today. Firstly, the recent extension of furlough and postponement of the job retention bonus. Secondly, how employers might deal with survivor guilt. Thirdly, the importance of reviewing policy and process in the aftermath of a redundancy process. Fourthly, can an employer go out into the market and recruit following a redundancy process? And then finally, when making redundancies in batches, how does an employer know if they need to collectively consult? And hot off the presses, we have a judgment from the European Court just this morning to discuss, so stay tuned for that. I should say that this podcast is being recorded on the 11th of November and reflects the law and guidance as it stands today. So, Porig, would you like to start us off on the first point? How might the extension of furlough impact redundancies and their aftermath? Claire, of course. I mean, as as most listeners will be aware, I think the, the Chancellor announced on the 5th of November that the furlough scheme was being extended until the end of March 2021 in the hope, I think, that you know, this will help to avoid redundancies, which would otherwise have been probably inevitable during this, this second or winter wave of the pandemic because we've already seen record redundancies in recent months, um, according to some ONS statistics uh, published yesterday, a record 181,000 increase uh, in the number of people unemployed in the three months to September. So those numbers undoubtedly linked to the expected closure of uh, the the pre-existing CGRS at the end of October. So now that the CGRS is being extended, there's certainly scope for employees who were made redundant in the period before now to be rehired and furloughed, which is good news for them and potentially for their employers also. And they can be rehired and benefit from the extended CJRS, provided they were on the employer's payroll on the 23rd of September of this year. And certain other eligibility requirements are also met. But the key message is that people already uh, let go can be rehired and benefit from the CJRS as extended. And that's useful flexibility, Porig, I agree. But I guess the question in my mind is that, is there any real incentive for an employer to do this? Yes, I mean, that's been a sort of a a question hanging over the extensions to the CJRS all along, I think. And, you know, at heart, the question remains, what is the likelihood of the relevant employee's job still being a viable job once the CJRS ends, uh, you know, again, for the second time or the third time? on schedule in March of 2021. And as with everything to do with COVID, I guess, and these current times, it's quite difficult for people to form secure judgments, you know, even looking what is only six months ahead, I guess, at this stage. Um, there's also the question as to the level of CJRS support that's now available. Um, the Initially, the contributions on this extended scheme will be equivalent to those that were offered uh, in August of 2020. That is, there's employers can claim up to 80% of wages for the furloughed employees, subject to a cap of £2,500 a month. But the sort of sting in the tail with the extended scheme is that the Chancellor has said that the level of employer contributions will be reviewed in January of 2021. So the visible certainty, if you like, of 80% up to the £2,500 cap 
the messaging seems to be that that's going to be you know driven downwards when it's re reviewed in January of 2021. So for some employers, the extended CTRS may simply be keeping people in employment for November, December and some of January. And then the inevitable may happen, I guess, if the funding support in January is decreased significantly. And of course, what employers thought is that if they kept people employed until January, they might benefit from the job retention bonus. Um, as a reminder, that was something that was put in place when we thought that the furlough scheme was ending at the end of October to incentivise employers to keep people on payroll until the end of January next year, and they could then reclaim um, £1,000 per retained employee. However, the Chancellor announced at the same time as the extension of the CGRS that the job retention bonus is no longer going to apply. They have said there will be an alternative retention incentive put in place at the appropriate time. Not yet clear what that's going to look like, so employers will need to be keeping an eye out for further details. What we did know from the, the JRB was that it was payable to employers. And if that remains the case with whatever new retention incentive is put in place, employers are going to need to decide if they nevertheless want to pass on this incentive to employees as part of their package for incentivising survivors. We talked a little bit about incentivising survivors from a remuneration perspective in our last podcast. And what we want to move on to look at now is a related topic of how employers can deal with survivors' guilt. Yeah, and I, I have to say, Claire, I, I dislike the word survivors, but I know what it means, so let's let's use it in any event, because that's the term, I think. And the, the concept of survivor's guilt is you know, certainly taking on a renewed importance in the current circumstances, given you know, all the other strains on employees' mental health, you know, family life, um, worrying about money, productivity generally. So in this employment context, survivor's guilt is referring to emotional, psychological and even physical effects on employees who are not dismissed during a redundancy process, because those people may feel guilty that they were you know, saved or angry that colleagues, perhaps you know, close friends in the workplace, have been dismissed, or most relevantly, perhaps you know, concerned, anxious that they themselves, even though they've avoided the chop this time, might be in the next round of redundancies. So you know, difficult issues for people to try and grapple with. And redundancy processes are always destabilizing even to those who aren't ultimately made redundant. And employees you know, do need time to adjust to perhaps new working patterns. Um, as I say, you know, people they're used to seeing in the workplace will no longer be there. And quite often those who remain you know, have taken on perhaps larger workloads than was the case beforehand. And as a result of those things, it isn't uncommon to see a drop in productivity of the survivors of those who who remain following a redundancy process. And that's despite the fact that obviously, you know, one of the the aims in designing and running a redundancy process is always to seek to retain the best performers amongst the relevant cohort of people. And that it's easy to assume that those who remain in the workforce will work harder in order to secure their jobs. So some sort of difficult issues to navigate through there, I think. Absolutely. So what can employers do to manage these issues? We would say one of the main things is to keep your, quote, survivors engaged throughout the redundancy process. I think what some employers will do is that they will identify those who are not at risk and they'll essentially leave them to get on with their jobs and focus on the employees that are at risk. Whereas if you actually keep survivors engaged and they are reassured that redundancies are necessary and they've been carried out fairly, that will minimise the risk of issues developing down the line. 
Another thing that we'd suggest is that employers extend their redundancy processes so that the process doesn't stop when the last employee has left the building. Instead, try to build in a process for engaging with survivors in the aftermath. And in practical terms, this means, for example, arranging regular one-to-one catch-ups between surviving employees and their managers uh, to discuss how they're coping. Another useful point can be to ensure that your managers are trained to spot the issues or signs of issues at an early stage and that they can then help to support employees who are struggling. It might also be that employees themselves need some retraining to help with any changes in their role. And then finally, ensure that mental health support is available for employees. What we've seen is that most employers have really stepped up their offering in the past few months in, on the mental health support side because of all the challenges that the, the pandemic has created for their employees. And I guess there's sort of a linked point just to bring up at this stage, Claire, in terms of you know, the process, the end of the process and the post-process sort of period is around the importance of reviewing redundancy related policies and and procedures and you know as with all sort of difficult projects once they're complete the temptation is really just to breathe a sigh of relief thank god it's over and move on to the next thing and the next sort of you know hopefully slightly more palatable thing but particularly in the case of redundancies i think where you know as we've discussed even those who remain will have been impacted by the process it is important i think to take time to look back at how the process went immediately after it's over, when people have, you know, fresh memories of what happened, there'll be obvious points that occur to them as to what worked well or what didn't. That's the time to try and capture any sort of learnings, anything spotted, any process improvements, so that the next time such a process is needed, it can be run more efficiently from the employer's perspective and with less strain on the employees from their perspective. I agree. And I think given the likelihood of a prolonged economic downturn and the stop start nature that we've seen of government support around the pandemic, I think it looks likely that a lot of businesses will need to implement more than one redundancy process over the coming months. So that there is going to be an opportunity to assess and make improvements as you go along. There's also another thing to bear in mind is that the sheer rate of change and developments that we're seeing at the moment means that employers need to be even more vigilant than usual in reviewing their processes to make sure that they remain compliant. So the furlough extension we've just talked about is only one example of these sorts of fast moving developments. And another one is the European Court decision, which we're going to look at shortly. But before we get to that, that the fourth key point we wanted to look at today is whether an employer can recruit following a redundancy process. And I guess the starting point is if you have new vacancies or alternative employment available, that's always going to be relevant uh, when you're looking at a redundancy process. On the one hand, it might actually negate the suggestion that there is a redundancy situation at all, which, of course, could render any redundancy dismissals unfair. But in any event, it's also always a key aspect of a, a fair redundancy process that the employer has to consider whether there's any alternative employment which could be offered to a redundant employee. And even where there is ostensibly no other work to do, a failure to at least try to find alternative employment could make an otherwise fair redundancy unfair. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, advertising, as sometimes happens for new recruits shortly after a completed redundancy process, is another factor which is always going to put the fairness of the, you know, the pre-existing redundancies under quite close scrutiny. 
the, the books are full of cases um, dealing with instances like that, which flag the concern around that, that sort of timing uh, on happiness, as it were. On the other hand, you know, if the vacancies genuinely don't arise until after completion of the redundancy processes, then the employer's failure to consider the redundant employee for those you know, newly opened up posts won't of itself retrospectively render an otherwise fair dismissal unfair. So in a sense, the timing, the actual facts on the ground, those are the key things to be alive to and to be aware of. So our final point today relates to successive redundancies and and the need to collectively consult. Um, As we've mentioned in previous podcasts, the obligation to carry out collective consultation arises where an employer proposes to dismiss as redundant 20 or more employees at one establishment within a period of 90 days or less. And it's that 90 day period we're focusing on now. A question we're often asked, and again, particularly at the moment, is what happens where redundancies are carried out in stages. So for example, if an employer initially proposes 15 redundancies, but then proposes another 15, say, within the same 90 day period, has the obligation to collectively consult been triggered? And on this point, Claire, as you know, it comes up relatively often in practice, this is one of those areas of the law which has never been as clear as it might be. It's partly because of the interaction of EU law and domestic uh, English or UK law. But that said, in general terms, you, know, you can't artificially stagger redundancies to try and evade the 90-day period in order to avoid the collective consultation obligation. So you know, using, using your example, Claire, if the if the employer knew at the outset that they did in fact need to make 30 redundancies within the 90-day period, then you know, trying to escape the consultation obligations just by, if you like, presenting it as an initial 15 followed by a further 15 within the 90 days just isn't going to work. That said, you know, if there are two genuinely distinct or separate proposals or you know, the, the original proposal to dismiss 15 genuinely changes to a proposal to dismiss 30, then on the basis of you know, English law to date, um, it's certainly possible to argue, I think, relatively persuasively, albeit you know, not, not sort of conclusively, that there are two proposals and they should be treated as two separate proposals, neither of which in itself triggers the um, collective consultation obligation. So, you know, in your example, where there was an initial 15 as a genuine matter and then a subsequent 15 as a, a genuinely new matter, it should be possible to avoid consultation on both of those batches, so neither would require consultation. So, as I say, the sort of reasonably settled position, which is always subject to knowing the facts, I think, but the reasonably settled position has been that you calculate the 90-day period looking forwards, forwards only, from the point when the employer formulates the redundancy proposal. And it's it's that point there, I think, which has now been pronounced upon this morning by the Court of Justice in the European Union. Absolutely. So that's what we want to look at now. So it concerned a Spanish case, and it's UQ and, and Marklean Technologies. And the fact pattern was similar to what we've just been discussing. So two separate batches of redundancies, which looked at individually, didn't trigger the threshold for consultation. And one of the employees who was part of the first batch of dismissals brought a claim, essentially arguing that there had in fact been a covert collective redundancy process. And the Spanish court referred the case to the European court for guidance on how the 90-day period should be calculated. And the Advocate General gave his opinion back in June, and his view was that 
the obligation to consult will be triggered where the requisite number of redundancies are actually made over a period of 90 days. And that 90 day period could be measured backwards before the worker's dismissal or forwards after it, or indeed across the dismissal date. And all that was required is that the 90 day period is consecutive and the worker is dismissed within that period. Now, when that came out in June, it was seen as quite a surprising interpretation, given the, the wording of the directive, as reflected in our UK law, which applies the consultation obligations where the employer is contemplating or proposing collective redundancies. So it requires you to look forward, as Porog's just mentioned, to see how many redundancies are contemplated. The European Court, as we've said, gave its judgment this morning, and it's in effect upheld the Advocate General's opinion. It said that the 90-day period is any consecutive period, which includes the individual dismissal concerned, which produces the largest number of redundancy dismissals and therefore gives the greatest chance of consultation obligations being triggered. It follows a consistent theme that we see from the European Court, which is always trying to enhance the protection for employees as much as possible. And what that means is that employers are going to be required to look both backwards and forwards over what's essentially a rolling 90-day period to determine whether the threshold number of redundancies is met. Yeah, as we were saying, is is quite a different approach to what's understood to be required up to now. Um, it's, it's a very interesting decision. I mean, in some ways, I suppose it's relatively straightforward to apply because you're you're sort of taking a, you know, a, a sort of a photograph of what's happened before and after the dismissal you're thinking about. But equally, it certainly makes the process of planning for identifying whether you need a consultation. You know, there there are going to be more, I guess, than there would have been before this case was decided. And one thing we were just discussing when we were on the lookout for this judgment this morning was, well, does any of this matter to us in the UK, given that we're sort of six weeks away from ceasing to be subject to uh, European Union law? But nonetheless, this decision does have relevance for us because that decision and the underlying directives um, you know, remain a part of UK law unless and until Parliament legislates to overturn them or unless and until either the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal decides that they aren't binding in the UK. So unhappy as it may be from an employer's perspective, the, the decision this morning in the Marklene case um, is relevant to us here and will need to be taken into account by employers who are working out you know, whether any set of proposed dismissals when looked at in the context of a, you know, effectively a fluid 90-day period, both backwards and forwards, whether that's going to trigger a collective consultation obligation or not. Thanks, Porig. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast and indeed this series. Thank you all for listening. You can find all of our podcasts in this series and more broadly on the Slaughter and May website. Thank you and goodbye for now. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.